I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. A lot to get into because opening weekend of Major League Baseball is now in the rear view. The Bruins have made history. They won their 60th game on Sunday. They're the fourth team in NHL history to do that. It's just a couple of other teams at the Bruins. So it's been a real special season for them. So in regards to the Bruins, I want to get into the best teams over the past 20 years here locally and where the Bruins would rank. I should say the past 23 years or so, basically since the turn of the century, like the greatest Boston teams of all time. Now, I'm not going back into the 1980s because I wasn't alive to see those teams play. So I did not get to see Larry Bird play in 1986. And that's regarded to be one of the great greatest teams in NBA history. I mean, it's them, it's the Bulls. You can throw that current Warriors team, or not that current Warriors team, but the Warriors team with Durant. Like the Celtics, maybe some of the Showtime Lakers team. The Celtics are in the discussion, that 86 team, as one of the greatest teams in NBA history. But I'm going from the teams that I've watched and where this Bruins team would rank if they actually win a championship. So we'll get into that. Plus, I do want to get into some of the thoughts I had after the opening weekend for the Red Sox, where they barely get by. They beat the Baltimore Orioles two out of three games, so they take the series. They got a little bit lucky. We'll get into that. But I did think there was some real positive things from this weekend, and I also thought there were some things that I'm really concerned about. So we'll do that in just a little bit. Coming up next, though, we'll chat with Michael Pina from The Ringer. We'll get into the Celtics. I'm trying to make the case that it may be actually better for the Celtics to play Philadelphia in the second round and be the number two seed rather than be the number one seed and play Cleveland. So I'll ask Pina if I'm crazy for that. So we'll do that next year. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from The Ringer. You hear him on The Ringer NBA show. You hear him on Bill's Pod as well. You read his stuff at The Ringer. It is Michael Pina. Pina, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, Brian. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. So last time we had you on, you were telling me not to panic because I was panicking a little bit. And then the Celtics go on this big winning streak. I think they won, what, seven games in a row. So I'm like, all right, Pina was right about that. 
And then last week, I got to be honest, Pina, I was starting to get really worried again because the Celtics have this golden opportunity to get the number one seed and they lay an egg against Washington and Bradley Beal didn't even Mm -hmm. play in the game and Kyle Kuzma wasn't playing for them. So I'm like, what the heck? And then Thursday night happens and they go to Milwaukee. They beat the crap out of Giannis and the Bucks to the point they don't even have to play their guys in the fourth quarter do the Celtics. And now, man, I'm all the way back in. I mean, if you can play that way against the best team, the team that everybody considers to be the favorite to win the NBA championship, I don't know how you can't be all in. I mean, that's that was a huge statement to me. I don't think that was just, oh, the Bucks. it was a back-to-back. Well, Middleton didn't play in the first half of the back-to-back. I don't believe Lopez did either. I thought that was a huge statement game. First of all, thanks so much for having me on after I made a correct prediction. Um, so I, I always appreciate that when... <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was about 80% believing myself when uh, you had me on last. I think it was a day after they lost to the Houston Rockets, which is about as low as a, an NBA franchise can go. Um, and you're right, they're 7-2 and two since then. Their net rating is 15.7, plus 15.7 wow. in nine games. Uh, they have the best offense in the NBA since then, the second best defense, uh, Tatum's three-point shot is here, which is great. It was not here for a very long stretch of the season. Jalen Brown looks like he's kind of solidified himself as... I mean, I, to be honest with you, I'd be a little surprised if he didn't make All-NBA. Um, I know there was a big back and forth about what position he would be voted in as. I think if you look at... I've been writing a column for my awards ballot, my official awards ballot, and uh, the forwards are just really all over the place. I would be kind of stunned given how good the Celtics are and how good he's been this season um, if he did not make All-NBA one of the All-NBA teams. So he's just been fantastic. Uh, Rob Williams played in five straight games, which is always just a joy. Did not play in the Utah Jazz game, the win over them in the back-to-back, which is kind of expected. But yeah, they looked really good against the Milwaukee Bucks. And I know that uh, the Bucks had played, what was that, like their fifth game in seven days or something like that. Uh, they played the Pacers the night before. As you said, though, uh, Middleton did not play in that game. I don't believe Joe Ingles played in that Pacers game. And you kind of saw like where the Celtics are very comfortable against the Milwaukee Bucks, which is on the wings, which is where the Celtics are at their strength. And there was one point in the game where Tatum, they had Giannis on Tatum. I think it was like in the second quarter. And Tatum hit like two or three threes, like step back threes in a row. And they moved... Giannis off of Tatum and put Wesley Matthews onto him. And that was when Wesley Matthews fouled Tatum in the corner shooting the three. And I was like, if that's the the adjustment, the Milwaukee Bucks are in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the interesting things, too, and I'm with you on Jalen, I believe now, obviously, he's going to make all NBA because he's on the forward line. And now on the Celtics broadcast, they talk about it all the time. Like, Jalen Brown is a forward. Like, they want it out there. <laughs> Jaylen, they're, they're obviously, like, putting this out there. Like, Jalen's a forward. Make sure he makes... All NBA, which would make life easier for everybody because nobody doesn't sign the Supermax, right? So then all this sort of all the noise we've heard about Jalen and his situation here long term, that certainly will go away, at least for the time being. But to your point about the Bucks matchup and with the wings, one of the interesting things that I find is they like to involve Giannis like they'll go after him like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, like they'll get him on a switch and they'll go after him. And I think part of what helps the Celtics when they do that is, first of all, Jalen and Definitely Tatum are very confident going up against Giannis one-on-one in terms of going after him and whether it's getting to their pull-up game, whether it's getting downhill. Either way, they're both comfortable doing that. But secondarily, 
then he's away from the basket, right? That rim protection, the way that he can, because when he's at his best, it's really as a help defender. So I really yep. think that's an advantage that I noticed it more so the other night than I have throughout the other matchups they've played. But that was something that I was like, oh, they're really trying to get Giannis involved more. And also it tires him out on the other end when you got to play against Tatum and Jalen. 100%. You got a guard on ball, 25 feet from the rim. Um, he picked up a couple touch fouls, I think, guarding, trying to impede Jalen drives, Tatum drives. And yeah, it's energy exertion. It's keeping him out of his strength, which is uh, rotating over from the weak side, um, which is a huge reason why the Bucks are one of the best defenses in the NBA. And I think it's like kind of an underrated aspect of Giannis's defense. He's obviously an amazing defender. He's one defensive player of the year in 2020 he was the runner up in 2021 uh his greatest play is probably a block in the nba finals just an absurd recovery play but i think like when he's out in space um you know he's huge and he's not as laterally quick as i think a lot of people assume like he's not Kawhi leonard on the ball it's just not type like his strength if you're looking if you're nitpicking him as a defender at this point in his career um he could do it i guess but it's just not what you want if you're him or if you're the Milwaukee Bucks. So like attacking him, uh, the age, I thought that they looked like a really old basketball team. It's only one game, but the age really kind of creeps up on you a little bit, especially if Chris Middleton is going to be kind of a shell of himself on the defensive end as he's been over the past few weeks and he's not playing back to back. So it'll be really interesting to see what his minute load is in the playoffs, because I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, but um, you know, he's missed a ton of time this season. And I think he's, I don't know if he's on a minutes restriction still. I don't believe he is, but he's not playing back to backs. They're still very, being very cautious with him. So yeah, there's just a lot of factors that like the bucks are still, amazing um but like you just think back to last year's playoffs and i think about jalen brown hunting grayson allen and then i'm watching that game on what was it thursday night or whenever and it's like there's jalen brown he's hunting grayson allen it's like this is exactly the same issue that the Milwaukee Bucks had in the postseason. And so for them to kind of enter, I mean, Pat Connaughton like didn't play in that game really until garbage time. That was not a mistake, I don't think, because he's just not, it's just not a good matchup for them in that regard. So they need size on the wing. Jay Crowder doesn't look like, I don't I, I say he's like a total wild card at this point. I have no idea what to make of what Jay Crowder can provide in a playoff series. Yeah. So. They need size on the wing, and I don't, and they need athleticism on the wing. And Giannis is kind of like their best guy, but as we just talked about, that's really not what you want him on ball against Tatum or Brown. Yeah, well, and the two big differences to me in this matchup that we saw the other night is this is now a situation where you basically have two players that you didn't have last year, right? Robert Williams only played in three games against the Milwaukee Bucks in that series, and he clearly wasn't himself. That's when he just came back from the injury, played at the tail end of the Nets series. I still don't know why they brought him back for that series. I think they could have waited a little bit until he was healthier instead of getting him back on the floor against the Nets. But that's in the past. But Rob's impact, we saw the help block that he had, of course, on Giannis. And the other thing that jumped out to me, Pina, is Malcolm Brogdon. And like when we think about playing the Bucks, you always think, OK, you got to hit all these above the break threes. They don't give up anything at the basket or anything along those lines. So I went back and looked at this. If you go back to last season in that playoff series, they were really bad in terms of their drives. So last season on drives in that ser- in that series, seven games, they shot 41.5% on their drives. 
No team last year shot south of 44%. Then you look at the three games this year on their drives. They're shooting 55.8% on drives against the Bucks. No team on the season is shooting north of 55% on drives. So they were like the worst driving team in the NBA by the numbers last year against the Bucks. And now against the Bucks, they're like the best driving team. And a lot of it has to do with Brogdon. 34 drives, 10 of 16, 62.5%. Like in terms of like high volume, I guess drivers, you'd call it. Luke is the highest guy at 62.3%. Brogdon, and look, it's a small sample size, but I do think like A, having Rob, the ability to just throw up a lob to him. And then secondarily, having this card where Brogdon's a very unique player for them. Like, I, I don't really think they have a guy that has that similar skill th- set that Brogdon has. And I have to imagine with the Celtics went after Brogdon, part of the reason was this Bucks matchup. Get another guy that can create his own offense. But the impact that he had in that game against Milwaukee, I thought it was huge. Yeah, he was tremendous. There was one play where he went literally one on five in transition and scored at the rim. And I was at that point, I tweeted like the Bucks do not care <laughs> about this game. That's just I was like, they're not getting back in transition. They're not really hustling on the to grab defensive rebounds. It just didn't look like the Milwaukee Bucks that I've watched all season, really. Um, and Brogdon was super confident. And uh, you're right. He adds a different dimension to this team that they didn't have last season. I think, you know, they go get him because of yeah the bucks the bucks are the bucks really difficult half court defense um you know the heat that series they really died in the half court on offense as well and then obviously in the nba finals that's the one that really sticks out where they were just stuck in the mud and when you have someone who can catch drive put it on the deck shoot spot up threes uh hit floaters get to the basket um who's been a starting point guard in the NBA for his, basically his entire career up until this season full time. So he's like kind of critical. And I think that uh, low key has been under the radar a little bit, given all of the player, all the pieces that this team has had. I mean, I think when people talk about like who's the, been the third best player this season, you know, Derek White's name comes up, I think, the most. Um but to me, it's like you have the top two and then you have on any given night, like just incredible depth, three, four, five, six. Like, I don't really see a huge drop off between any of those guys. So Brogdon usually is in that pool and he's really valuable. And I think we haven't really seen yet where his value will most shine, which is in the postseason, which is what they traded him for. Yeah. And then with Rob, if you look at him this season, when he's been on the court, the Celtics are outscoring teams by more than eight points per 100 possessions. And I mean, if you just go on like cleaning the glass and look at his like impact page, it's all good numbers, right? He's all in like the 94th, 95th percentile, all that stuff. So I know like we always reference the defense with Rob and the dimension that he brings on that side of the floor. But if you go back to that Milwaukee series last year, like the Celtics defense was good. They held up the games that they were losing. It wasn't Mm -hmm. because of their defense. It was because of their offense. So I almost feel like, especially for this particular matchup, if it does end up being the conference finals matchup, I actually think Rob's impact on the offensive end is more important than his defense. And I'm not saying he's not a great defender because he certainly is, but I just think about a couple of plays where, okay, if you're driving in, you can throw up an easy lob to the guy when he's actually on the court in terms of him offensive rebounding. It's like he's in the 94th percentile in terms of the differential. So, I mean, it goes through the roof when he's on the court compared to when he's not on the court. They don't get any offensive rebounds whatsoever. So I would actually argue that I think he's more important on the offense than the defense. Am I crazy? He's a great defender. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just start there. Um, really uh, changes a lot of what you can do on the defensive end. But I do think that, to your point, offensively, the tip outs, I said this on our last episode, I think, like, I just think the tip outs are, like, critical. He had four offensive rebounds against the Bucks in, like, 18 minutes. Like, if you really, like, the best case yeah. scenario when that happens, because you're going against a scrambled defense in that situation when he tips out obviously usually you get an open three that could be like plus 12 best case scenario for offensive rebounds on the tip outs so uh yeah he's been i mean he he always is like critical in that regard he's someone who you can uh you know pitch and catch throw it to him on the perimeter 25 feet from the rim uh Tatum gets a lot of really good looks behind the three-point line, especially against, you know, when Brooke Lopez is guarding Rob and he's sagging back. Um, like, Rob's ball skills are so good where, like, those DHOs, they're not even really DHOs. They're just, like, you throw it to Rob and then you move off the ball and then he throws it back to you and you're wide open for a three. Like, yeah. the chemistry there, particularly with Tatum, is just uh, through the roof. And so it's not like Al Horford can't do that or Grant Williams can't do that. I just think Rob is like a really smart, intuitive passer as well. And he really reads how to give his guys the ball where they want it. And um, to say nothing about like him being one of the better lob threats in the league and just this freak athlete, et cetera, et cetera. Great screener, great dive man, et cetera. But I just think like the offensive rebounds, the second chance opportunities that he creates, that's where you really kind of separate yourself when he's on the floor. And that's why I think, you know, he only played 18 in that game, I think, because it was a 40 point blowout. But in the playoffs, if he can give you 30 minutes, 25 to 30 minutes of like really high intense, high energy basketball, like I just think this team is unbeatable. I've always thought that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the comparison, and I've said it a bunch of times in the show, my comparison to him is Gronk. Like when he, when the Patriots had Gronk, they really didn't lose. And that's what it feels like to me. Like when Rob's on the court, the Celtics are beating the crap out of teams every time. So, Pete, I'm looking ahead to the second round of the postseason and the potential matchups for the Celtics. Philly, Cleveland, and the Knicks, like if somehow the Celtics got into that one spot, which it looks unlikely now because of the Washington loss. I guess you could go through a lot of the losses. Like the they lost three times to Orlando. They lost to, you mentioned the Houston one. OKC is a good team, but they lost to them by like 50. I mean, that was just a really poor performance. But So you could pick out a bunch of them, but it looks like they're going to end up with that number two seed. But could you make a case for the Celtics that they're actually better off playing Philly in the second round than playing, say, the Cavs? I mean, look, I, I know it's a regular season, but Celtics 3-0 and against the 76ers. They are outscoring them by 7.1 points per 100 possessions. They're 1-3 and against the Cavs. Now, they had some guys out in a couple of those games, mainly Robert Williams. And the Knicks, they're 1-3 and again. They had guys that were dealing with injuries and stuff along those lines. But I just look at the matchup with Philadelphia and the recent success they've had against this team. I look at that team and I don't see enough in terms of what Philadelphia has on the wings to be able to defend. And like McDaniels, they go out and get him. Tatum torches that guy every time. I mean, earlier this season against Charlotte, he just completely torches him. So when I look at it, I just think about that team and I don't think they have enough to be able to hang with the Celtics in terms of what they have on the wing. And when I look at a team like Cleveland, I guess the other component too is like Harden. Is Harden right? Because I know he had a big game the other night, but he's had some stinkers since he came back from the Achilles situation. Right. But the thing that scares me about Cleveland is they have all this size, and I know they don't have a lot of wings 
either, but they do have Donovan Mitchell, who we know can go for 50, and he every time he plays the Celtics, I feel like he has 40 points. He just owns the Celtics. So is there a case to be made that Philadelphia is actually a better second-round matchup for the Celtics than the Cleveland Cavaliers? I think the Sixers are a good matchup for the Celtics, but I would rather play the team that does not have Joel Embiid. <laughs> that's just that's like my fast <laughs> yeah, and loose point. analysis there. Um, I think if you were to play, if you were to, if you were to have the one seed, um, like the other big part of that is okay. We get to have home court in the conference finals, and we get to have it potentially against the Milwaukee Bucks. So like. That's where yeah. I'd much rather just have the one seed. Um, you'd have home court in the NBA Finals as well. I think you'd probably have it either way, given Denver's record um, and the disparity there. But, like, I don't know. The Cleveland Cavaliers, super young, super inexperienced. Them, like, I just I find it really hard to imagine them beating the Celtics four times in, like, Without home court, even with home court, it wouldn't matter. I mean, they have a losing record on the road this year, the Cavs do. Uh, Mitchell's great. Garland's great. Uh, just wrote a huge piece about Evan Mobley, and I've watched basically every Cavs game this season because of that story. So I'm very familiar with the team. And I just think in the playoffs, you're going to see a dip on them offensively when teams are just... I mean, Evan Mobley is such a special player He's also having one of the worst, if not the worst, three-point shooting season anyone's ever had who's taken as many threes as he has. And I think that compounded with who is going to be their three-man. Is it Okoro? Um, Wade's been like in and out of the rotation. He was like kind of critical for them, and they thought he was going to be huge when they waved Kevin Love. Um, you know, Karis LeVert in the playoffs, do you really want him to take big shots for you? I don't know. So... I I'd rather play the Cavs like kind of easily, but going back to your initial question, I I do think that also the Sixers are a good matchup. I don't see either team beating the Celtics, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm with you when it comes to that, and it's a good point. I mean, when in doubt, the other team has Joel Embiid, so that's pretty scary that you have to deal with that guy. Because even like the game that the Celtics won, the buzzer beater from Tatum after the All Star break, you still had Joel Embiid went off in that game. The Celtics did not have an answer for him whatsoever. They've defended him well in the past as well as. A lot of teams really could, but he's obviously going to be a very difficult guy to match up with. Okay, so from a Bucks perspective, is there a team in the second round? Like, do you think, because I'm looking at this from a Celtics perspective saying, hey, I want these teams to get beat up before the Celtics, right? Because the Celtics are going to have this Philly series. So that was like my whole thing about the one seed is, hey, at, when we thought that these were clearly the three best teams, I'm like, hey, get the one seed. That way you get there. And Milwaukee, like Giannis and Embiid can beat up on each other, which I thought would benefit the Celtics. Either way, but is there a team like could Cleveland put a scare into Milwaukee? Do you see anybody giving Milwaukee a challenge until they get to the conference finals against in all likelihood the Seas? Um, I mean, because of how the Bucks defend, I think it would be really interesting to see, like, let's say by game three, game four of that series, the Cavs realize, okay. We're going to live and die by like Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland just taking pull up threes. And that's just going to be it. That's going to have to be like the bread and butter of our whole offense. Mm -hmm. And like, can you win a series? How many games can you win doing that? I don't, I don't know. I, I do know that Evan Mobley had 
the best game of his career against the Bucks earlier this season when uh, Lopez was, I think every player on the Bucks was active for that game. He had like 39 and 17 and he didn't even attempt a three. So he was just living in the pain on, you know, short rolls and that sort of thing. And so eventually, like if you're forced to trap Garland, you're forced to trap Mitchell, like can Jared Allen and Mobley make you pay? And then it gets really interesting um, I think we're a little far upstream, to be honest with you. Like, I much, ra- I, I think what's far more likely is like Giannis fouling out Allen and Mobley, like in yeah. the third quarter of these games, just being an absolute menace. Um, and I, I think the Middleton question is really interesting. They don't really have anybody who can bother him, like the Celtics can. Um, they don't even have like a PJ Tucker esque player who could really get physical with him and uh, make him work up and down the court. And then, you know, I just said that thing about M- Mitchell and Garland shooting threes, but like Drew Holiday is going to be on one of them. And he's like, yeah. he's on my first team all defense this year. And he's been, he's like, should be a defensive player of the year candidate. So, um, yeah, long story short, like the Bucks are, they would probably win that series pretty easily, I think. Yeah. By the way, now that you mentioned the Drew Holiday thing, do you think White's going to make a All NBA team, the first or the second defense? Uh, it's possible. I have him on my second team right now in pencil, and you know, I think that you look at how successful the Celtics have been on defense this season, and I think some voters want to reward that sort of thing, uh, and he would probably be the best candidate for it this year. So if that's your argument, plus, you know, everything he actually does on defense, which is tremendous, the blocks, the charges, all that sort of stuff. Like, he's just a really, he's a hustle demon. Um, I think it's definitely possible, for sure. All right, Pina. Hey, before we let you go, it seems like right now, just like watching from afar, obviously, I'm watching a lot of games late in the West, but obviously, I'm glued into the Celtics. I mean, that conference just seems like it's drunk. I, who do you think wins it? Do you have a pick right now? Like, who's the favorite? I know you're a big Kawhi guy, but we'll see if they get Paul George back based on that injury situation there. But man, th- I can't remember it being this unpredictable, like entering the postseason where you don't have like a clear or one or two clear favorites in a conference. It's kind of wild. Yeah, I think I think the Nuggets should be the favorite. You got to give them their due. I think they have the best player. They'll have the best player in every series. Their offense, you can't stop it. Don't care what defense you got going. Like, they're amazing. So I would say that they're the favorite, but then it's a light, tepid favorite. Um, I want to see KD, Devin Booker, CP. I want to see that team, like, start to gel. And I, 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 I'm, I'm such an idiot, but, like, yeah, I'm, I, I can't give up on the Clippers. I'm a total clown. I understand. <laughs> um I want to see like the the seeds before I get too high, too low. Because right now, if the season were to end, the Clippers are the sixth seed, and they would play the Sacramento Kings in round one. And all due respect to the Sacramento Kings, I think they could definitely win that series. But okay, Keegan Murray on Kawhi Leonard, like Kawhi dropped forty. I don't know if anyone watched that game. I know they lost against the Pelicans, but like Kawhi was guarding Ingram, and he was dropping forty on the other end, and he's just like. He's just so amazing. Um, so, and Norm Powell's back. Russ, Russell Westbrook actually looks good. I know everyone was hating on that 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 uh, that signing, but he's actually played like tremendous since they've gotten him. So, who knows? Um, I do want to see kind of the matchups and everything. I think that'll dictate a lot of it. 
Andrew Wiggins is back in the Bay Area. I saw yesterday, so you know we'll see what happens with the Warriors. They have a pretty big game or whatever game against the uh, the Nuggets tonight. That'll be interesting. Can't count them out if they're healthy. Uh, but describing the Western Conference as drunk, I think, is a uh, that's that's apropos. And we didn't mention the <laughs> Lakers. Um, yeah, but I'm I just can't get there with them, and I don't think I will. For I don't I don't know if I ever will. Honestly, like. To, to suggest that they could actually win, like, I don't think they can win one series. So to suggest that they could win two, three series, like, I just, it's so insane to me. Um, I can't go there with them. Like, their road would just be so difficult. And LeBron's hurt. Like, LeBron's playing hurt. Let's be serious. Like, that's what's happening. He's playing hurt. Um, Anthony Davis is amazing, and they beat the Minnesota Timberwolves the other night, but he's literally limping up and down the court in the second half because he hurt himself again. So it's just, it, I can't I can't go there with them. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have no empathy for the Lakers. I hate the Lakers as a Celtics fan, okay? So if they're going to, and like it got worse when LeBron went there, right? Because like LeBron was always beating the Celtics in all these playoff series. And then he goes to the Lakers. It's like, that's like the worst combination, LeBron on the Lakers. All right, that is Michael Pina from The Ringer. You hear him on The Ringer NBA show. You hear him on Bill's Pod as well. Pina, thanks so much for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, Brian. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Michael Pina, Chat and Seas. And it is interesting. I, I hate it when the Celtics don't play on Saturday or Sunday. I usually look forward to a Saturday or a Sunday game. So unfortunately, we get to wait until Tuesday, the showdown with Joel Embiid and the Philadelphia 76ers, so look forward to that as well. So I did want to get into the Red Sox coming off this opening day weekend here. And before I do that, actually, so I was at the game on Saturday, sale day. I did not go Thursday. I did not go on Sunday, but I was at sale day, which I'll get into that in a second here. But man, the commute getting to sale day was just a complete disaster for me. So I'm taking the 137 train from Beverly to get to North Station, and then, of course, I got to hop over, get in the green line, and go to the ballpark. So here's the problem. It's getting to be about 150, and the game is at 410, of course, on Saturday. And I'm thinking to myself, like, hold on. This train is still not here. I was with a couple of other people, three other people. And I'm like, maybe we should just get an Uber. So I had an Uber lined up to go, and then all of a sudden we hear the train coming. So the train is late to begin with. So I'm like, okay, there's something fishy going on here. So then when we're on the train... This thing breaks down three different times or stops, I should say, three different times. And the lights go off and all that. And finally, they said, hey, we can get there, but it's going to be only 20 miles an hour. So it takes us forever just to get to North Station. And then when we get to North Station, we're going to cross over and that's closed down. So then we got to get an Uber from there. So it was a complete disaster. We left Beverly at 137 to go to the 410 game because we were planning on getting there a little bit early, as you like to do sometimes when you go to the Red Sox, right? We didn't get there until basically first pitch. I walked in and Chris Sale is about to get rocked. He's making his first pitch of the game. So that was just a disaster to begin with in terms of the travel. The game was awesome. The experience was awesome and all that, but just a disaster getting in there. But And I'm sure a lot of you can sympathize with that, that that type of problem has happened with you before traveling into Fenway Park. But as it pertains to just some of the stuff that went on this weekend, how about Adam Duvall? I mean, what a weekend for this guy, right? So obviously now on Saturday, you're helped by McKenna. And by the way, I'm on the monster for that game on Saturday. 
So I didn't see McKenna drop the ball. I had to see it on the monitor because that's like the one part of the field that you can't see when you're on the monster. Great vantage point and all that. But he doesn't make that catch. And so Duvall gets to the plate and, of course, hits the walk-off home run. But if you look at it for Duvall, this is just a great sign that he's off to this type of start for a couple of reasons. And the reason I really say this is because Duvall is a notorious slow starter. So if you look at his numbers, April and March, he's a career 213 hitter and a 708 OPS. Those numbers climb throughout the year. May, he goes up to 242, 774. And then June, he goes up to 254, 852. So those numbers in March and April are usually really bad for Adam Duvall, 213, 708. Totally different to be in this season, right? So just seeing the start is massive for this guy because we saw it in spring training, right? Where he had a very slow start to spring training and then he got red hot and he's carried that over into the season, which is obviously major for this Red Sox team. And what can happen with a guy like Duvall is if you look at his career, so from 2016 to 2022, when he started to become an everyday player, his launch angle was 21.9 degrees. So he's hitting everything in the air, right? That was the third highest launch angle in all of Major League Baseball during that stretch. Okay, so he is of the launch angle revolution, if you will. So the problem with that is when the timing is not there with the launch angle, you get a ton of strikeouts, right? So Duvall during that stretch, 28.3% strikeout rate from 16 to 2022, that was 367th, or I should say 376th out of 418 qualifiers. So he strikes out a ton. So you're going to get a ton of strikeouts and you still will, even when he's in rhythm, right? But when he's on and that timing is good, what's going to happen with Adam Duvall as a huge dude and a guy with a massive launch angle, he is going to maybe not hit for average, but what he's going to do, he's going to hit for a ton of power and a ton of extra base hits. Obviously, right now he's hitting for everything. We're only three games into the season, though. So if you look at his isolated power during that stretch from 16 to 2022, basically that just measures the slugging percentage and you subtract the batting average. So it basically tells you how often the player is getting extra base hits, right? So that number was at 237 for Duvall during that stretch. That is elite power. That that was 37th out of those 418 hitters, right behind Mookie Betts and nine spots in front of Rafael Devers. So the power with Duvall has never been a question. This guy has legitimate power. So when that timing's on, it's going to be a lot of home runs. And as we've been seeing, it's going to be home runs. It's going to be shots off the green monster. So you also look at the fact that he makes really good contact because of that launch angle. So he barrels up 11.8% of his batted balls during that stretch, which was 38. So when he's on, we know what he's capable of doing, leaving the ballpark a lot, hitting for a ton of power, which we've seen over the past couple days, right? So you look at Saturday, that triple, it's a four-seamer that he crushes 104.5 miles an hour. The first home run on Saturday, that was a bad cutter that played like a fastball because it didn't move. So it's basically like throwing him a BP fastball. And then the home run, the walk-off, that was fastball down in the zone at 106.7, where that is like perfect for a launch angle guy when you can get a fastball down in the zone because then it's very easy for those type of players to just completely elevate the baseball, right? And then you look at the double. He was actually in front of the changeup today in that game on Sunday, I should say. He was in front of the changeup, but he's so strong, Duvall is, that he could still muscle that into the outfield and get a base hit because that, or I should say a double, but that was a case where you could tell his timing was off and he's still able to drive that into the outfield. Just amazing. It just tells you the strength that this guy has. And then in the fifth inning, it's another fastball, 97, two run single, where again, this guy murders fastballs. The double, another fastball that was up in the zone, crushed that off the wall. So this guy can absolutely murder fastballs. So this is a thing. 
He's going to hit fastballs when his timing is right. And with the launch angle, he's going to get under it and hit the ball out of the ballpark very often and for a ton of base hits as we're seeing so far this season. So the thing about launch angle, guys, they have more trouble with breaking balls and off-speed pitches that they can't get under and elevate, right? So, But if you look at fastballs, you go back 2019, 274, 672 slug, 2020, 310, and I know it's a shortened season, but 640 slug. So he's had some really great seasons hitting fastballs. Now, those numbers dipped a bit last year, but he's very capable of murdering fastballs. And we know last year he was dealing with an injury. But this is a major development because if he can give you 30 home runs, that's going to be massive for this team. Because when you look at this lineup, Rafi's going to get 30. I truly believe that. I know he hasn't hit one yet, but we're three games in. He looks really healthy, which I think now watching Rafael Devers at the plate right now, you can tell like last year, yeah, he was really banged up at the end of the season, the way that he's swinging the bat right now. But who else on this team is a lock to hit 25 home runs besides Rafi? No story hurts in terms of the power in this lineup. Now, it hasn't hurt so far this season, but remember, Story was second on the team last year, tied for second with J.D., and he only played in 94 games in terms of home runs. I want to say Yoshida, but that's asking a lot his first year over here to get to 25. Turner hit 27 two years ago, but just 13 last year. I don't think he gets there. Now, Kike has two home runs. His career high is 21. I don't think he gets to 25. Maybe he does, but that's you can't really predict that. Like The thing about Duvall, we've seen him hit 30 home runs in three different seasons. Verdugo's career high is only 13. He'll break that this year. Verdugo looks really good at the plate as well. Cassis has a chance, but again, this is a rookie. So Duvall bringing that back to the lineup, because we already know the defense is elite, right? He's had four top four finishes, or top five finishes, I should say, for the Gold Glove. He's won a gold glove. He's led Major League Baseball in terms of outfielders and defensive run saves. So we know he's going to play great uh, defensively. But now with this power, like this is real. This guy legitimately can hit 30 home runs. So it's been a great signing so far for the Red Sox. And I know we're three games into this and he's playing every day in center field. And you kind of worry about that because he's bigger. But man, I had a ton of fun watching Duvall this week. And that guy can absolutely clobber the ball when he gets into it. Oh, and the home runs, by the way, this is another thing that I feel good about. The home runs are back, baby. Like, the Red Sox are actually hitting home runs. Like, if you go back, like, okay, Kike had one on Sunday. Kike had one on Saturday. Duvall had the two on Saturday. You had one from Kike, as we mentioned, on Saturday as well. So you're starting to see some home runs with this lineup, something that was sorely missing last year. So if you look at this Red Sox team, when they make runs, they're in the top 10 in Major League Baseball in home runs, right? So if you go back to 18, they hit 208 home runs. That was ninth. Of course, they won the World Series that year. Then you go to 2021, they hit 219 home runs. That was 10th in Major League Baseball, right? When they made that run to the ALCS in 2021, 219 home runs. That number was all the way down to 155 last year, 20th. So you hit 64 less home runs than you did the season before when you made that run. So getting those home runs from Verdugo, getting those home runs from Duvall, getting those home runs from Kike, that reminds you this is the Red Sox again. Like this, this team looks like the Red Sox again. They're actually hitting the ball to the ballpark, which was missing. And it was something that was abundantly clear for the majority of last season with the power outage to some of the guys like the Xander Bogarts of the world and the J.D. Martinez's of the world. Okay, now I want to get to something that was not good from over the weekend. That's Chris Sale. So he starts out that game, like I said, I'm walking in, first pitch is getting underway, he strikes out Urias on a nasty slider, and I'm like, okay, here we go, sale day, I'm all pumped up, I'm tweeting it out, I'm tweeting out pictures of Chris Sale, I'm fired up, and then after that, it's just a complete mess, right? Rushman gets a base hit off him, fastball, middle, middle. The Mountcastle home run was a bad slider. That thing had just two inches of horizontal break, so it didn't move at all, and that's a pitch for sale that he's usually averaging 14 and a half inches of break on that pitch in terms of the horizontal break. 
movement. That's one of the nastiest pitches in baseball, and that thing didn't move at all. That just it, He didn't execute the slider there. The Hayes home run, it's a four-seamer middle-middle, just bad location. He just really didn't have his command. Top of the second inning, he walked Mateo to start that inning. All four misses were bad. Two fastballs that were way out of the zone, and then two sliders that were not even close. Like, he had no command in this game. Mullins, by the way, the single, and after that, he struck out McKenna and Urias back-to-back, got them with fastballs up at the top of the zone. So he did get out of that inning, but when he walked Mateo, that's when you kind of thought, okay, this is this is going to get even uglier than it already was. And then Mullins, the third home run, that was a fastball that was basically up in the zone, and it wasn't up enough, missed his spot. And this is after he got ahead 0-2. So, and then he threw a brutal slider that was not close. That was sort of the theme of the day, too, with Chris. So he didn't have a slider. He basically didn't have a slider yesterday. It was not an effective pitch for him whatsoever. Next battery hit McKenna with that slider. So he just, he never really had a feel for that pitch yesterday, which was just, of course, an issue. But just think about this. He threw 16 sliders. He only got five swings. Now, the good thing is he did get four whiffs out of that, but only one ball in play on the slider was the Mountcastle home run. That's it. So the problem is he could not find that pitch at all. So he didn't have that at all. And only six of the 16 sliders were actually in the strike zone. So look, obviously you want guys chasing that pitch out of the zone, but the problem is that most of the sliders he threw were way out of the strike zone, right? Like they weren't even enticing enough and he's hitting guys with it, right? So that was the issue is he didn't have a slider in this game whatsoever. He had no feel for that pitch. The good news is the velocity was at least there. 94.9 miles per hour with the four-seamer, 79.2 with the slider. Now, 2021, the fastball is at 93.6. As we said yesterday, it's at 94.9. And you go back to 18 when he was Chris Sale, 95.2. So he's very close velocity-wise. That's the good thing. The stuff was really good besides the slider, right? Like, I thought the changeup looked pretty good, and I thought the fastball was good. And if you look at it overall, 30 swings, he got 13 whiffs. I mean, that's 43.3%. So that's like an unreal number. Only seven guys were north of, north of 30% last year. Corbin Burns led all of baseball at 35.2%. Chris Sale was at 43.3% on Saturday, which tells you, okay, he still has nastiness. He just has to find a way to get that command back and get feel for the slider. So... That's the positive note I take out of this outing for Chris Sale is just the fact that the stuff was playing, but the problem, the command, he just had no idea where the ball was going. Just 43 strikes out of his 74 pitches, 58.1%. And we told you when we were talking about Kluber the other day, no starter was self at 62% last year. Sale was at 58.1%. He had no idea where the ball was going, especially with the slider. He had no fucking idea where that thing was going. And then you had him missing badly in the zone, the fastballs to Mountcastle and Mullins. Those are not balls, but they're bad pitches. And it's really bad when you miss in the zone like that with that type of fastball. So what that meant was 11 batted balls yesterday for sale. Seven were hard hit. So that's off the bat 95 plus miles per hour. So that's a 63.6% hard hit rate. And if you look at it for sale, 2018, he's at 26.8%, which was fourth among starters. Even if you go back to 2021, his first year back from TJ, He's sitting at 32.2%, which is an elite number. You go all the way up to 63.6% in that game against Baltimore. Only one qualified starter was north of 47% last year. And when Sale was right from 12 to 18, he was seventh in Major League Baseball in terms of hard hit rate. So that just kind of tells you at 29.1%, that just kind of tells you we don't ordinarily see loud contact off Sale. And the reason we were seeing that is, of course, he threw that one bad slider, but Other than that, he was missing with the fastball. Like, he was missing his spots way too often in this game, so it leads to the loud contact. So after the game, he says, I left them completely out to dry tonight. This is about as embarrassed as I've ever been on a baseball field. 
So look, this is getting old. We hear this all the time now with Sale where he's a genuine guy. Like he truly is. I believe him when he says that, that he's embarrassed. Remember a couple of years ago, he said he was embarrassed for his family. So I truly believe that he feels that way. But it's just like, it's kind of getting old that he keeps saying this after bad outings. Like you just want him to not have to say this and just get back on track. And unfortunately, he keeps having to apologize or keeps having to apologize after these games. Cora said the stuff was okay. Location wasn't great. We're going to take a look at it and see if we can do better. Okay. So that's the thing. As I mentioned, it's it's location. It's command with Chris Sale. Like the the stuff is fine. It's just he couldn't locate his pitches. And as we mentioned, it's just command. So here's the reality of where this team's at right now. I know that Cora said before the season, they don't want to put everything on Chris Sale's shoulders. They don't want him to think that he has to carry the pitching staff. But if you look at this rotation right now, Whitlock, there's real upside with him as he makes his way back. Bayo, there's tremendous upside with that guy. I mean, just ridiculous in terms of the talent, right? But not with the other guys, the Pavettas, the Klubers of the world. Those guys at this particular point, well, not that Pavetta's old, but Pavetta's an innings eater and Kluber's an innings eater. They need Sale to be an anchor. And I'm not saying every time he goes out there, it's six innings and it's one earned run. But he has to be a guy that is a top end of the rotation pitcher. And it's not just like a luxury. It's like, oh, if Chris Sale's great, that's great for the Red Sox. No, it's not like 2021. He needs to be the guy that every fifth day he puts you in the game where you have a chance to win. Now, if we see bad results again next week, and he's still searching with his mechanics, the command, if they don't find what was wrong in this outing, this becomes a real concern, right? But I tend to stay say that the stuff played, he did get 13 swings and misses. That's elite. And his slider was non-competitive, and that's his best pitch. So I believe he's going to find a way to get the slider back, and the velocity is getting really close to where it was. So I look at this and I say, okay, I can give him one bad start, say he looks rusty, but going forward, now that he's healthy, he's making $27.5 million this season. We have to hold him accountable, right? Like, we got to be fair. There's no more excuses with this guy, especially after what we saw on opening day for him, personally, second game of the season for the Sox. But he needs to get back on track in this next outing. So I'm really interested to see, like, if they talk about some of the adjustments after his next start, if his next start is a good one. All right, Hauk, he starts on Sunday. And who knows how long he's going to be in the rotation if he's going to stay there. First four innings, he's cruising along. And you're thinking, oh, you probably got caught up like I did. Oh, Tanner Hook, this is the best he's looking sometime. He's coming back from the surgery that he had on his back last offseason. He looks nasty, right? And that's sort of the frustrating thing with Tanner Hook. He just loses it so quickly in these games. And he did it today in that fifth inning. And if you look at it, like, Tanner Houck was really good two years ago, and then he sort of dipped. So if you look at the numbers two years ago, strikeout rate was at 30.5%, which was in the 87th percentile. Last year, that number dipped to 22.7%. That was in the 49th percentile. So that's a massive drop-off for a guy like Houck, who's got filthy stuff. The whiff rate. So when a guy swings, how often is he missing? In 2021, he was in the 91st percentile at 30.9%. In 2022, he was in the 74th percentile at 29.2%. So the stuff was not the same as it was last year, as it was in 2021. But today, the stuff was that good. Like the stuff was nasty today. He had the five strikeouts, 27 swings, 10 whiffs. That's north of 37%, as we say with sale. Like that's an elite number. But so that's the good thing is the stuff looks like it did a couple of years ago where he was nasty in 2021. But what else did we see with Hulk? Well, that theme that I alluded to is all of a sudden he just loses it. It seems like it always happens with this guy so fast. So what we saw last year is the command was poor. The walk rate jumped from 7.4% to 8.9%. Now you're saying, okay, that doesn't sound like a big number. 
but it goes from the 63rd percentile all the way down to the 34th, right? So just the one walk today, but the location of his pitches were not good at times in this game. Like the Frazier home run, that was a cutter middle of the strike zone. He wants to throw that to lefties more often this year, he said, and he didn't really have that pitch last year, but that came off the bat 103.9 miles an hour. And the problem is the cutter didn't move. So it's basically just an 89 mile an hour fastball is basically what it was. It's got no movement whatsoever. It's right in the middle of the strike zone. And look, this is a pitch that he worked on a lot in the spring. And remember, he got absolutely cr- crushed in the spring, absolutely clobbered because he's just working on different stuff. That's why you can't overreact to some of the results you see in spring training. But I, I just don't know if you need that pitch, that cutter. He's got a splitter that he can throw to lefties and like his slider's nasty. He can obviously throw that. How many times do we see, have we seen the back foot slider from Tanner Houck over the years? So I, I don't really think he needs that cutter. I don't think it's a necessary pitch. And quite frankly, do you think it's a good pitch? I certainly don't. I'm not impressed with that pitch. I don't know why he needs it. And then the Mullins home run, that's a slider that's middle, middle. It's just a bad spot. And Mullins crushed it 104 miles hours off the bat. And that one just didn't have any bite. That was in the middle of the zone, barely moved. And Houck's a guy that he gets filthy bite on that slider. He just didn't have it today in terms of that specific pitch. Overall, he had it, but not that specific pitch. So again, this is about location with Houck. And that was not a ball, but he missed in the strike zone, right? So what you get is loud contact. So unfortunately, some loud contact there. So now if you think about it from Houck's perspective, he went from two years ago, elite strikeout guy to below average. And he was elite in terms of inducing soft contact. That was worse last year, but it was it's something that, of course, he can improve on. But you look at this. So in terms of the loud contact, the home runs, of course, or I should say the home run, of course, that was a hard hit ball. But just five of 14 were hard hit. So that's 35.7%. That's the same neighborhood he was living in in 2021 when he had a 35.1% hard hit rate. That was in the 76th percentile. Last year, he was in the 36th percentile when it jumped to 39.3%. So today, we did see him getting a lot of soft contact, which is obviously huge with him. But the biggest issue to me with him, and this is really part of the reason I think he loses it so quickly, Tanner Houck is always working from behind. He's always working from behind. So if you go back to 2021, he was at 60.7% in terms of his first pitch strike rate. 2022, that number dipped to 51.4%. Now, that 60.7% isn't that good of a number. It's 147th out of 269 pitchers that threw at least 60 innings in 2021. So slightly below average. That 51.4% in terms of his first pitch strike rate, that was dead last of all pitchers that threw 60 innings in 2022. 273rd out of 273 pitchers, right? You cannot function that way in Major League Baseball. You're just putting yourself in a bad position over and over and over again. And what happened with the home runs today? The first pitch in terms of both batters that he gave up the home runs, first pitch was a ball both times, okay? 3-1 was the home run to Frazier and 2-1 was the home run to Mullins, okay? So it's actually really amazing that he was pretty good last year considering these numbers. Nobody was worse than Tanner Houck last year in terms of throwing first pitch strikes. So with me with Houck, I thought he looked really good for four innings And then he lost it. That's why I continue to say, as good as he looked for the first four innings, he is a reliever because he cannot go the distance. He doesn't have the ability to do so because he just completely loses it. Okay. Uh, The pitching department in general, you got three and a third from Kluber. You got three from Sale. You got five from Hauk. So you're going to have to lean on Crawford on Monday and Pavetta on Tuesday. So if you think about it, so (laughs) only one guy pitched into the fifth. Sale and Kluber combined for one out in the fourth inning. So look, the bullpen has improved. Blyer was bad on Sunday, obviously gave up the two earned 30 pitch inning. 
But other than that, the bullpen, for the most part, the guys that, like, you're depending on have been pretty good. Now, Brazier and Ort all sucked on Thursday. Kelly did as well. Kelly was not good on Saturday either. But that group did give you a lot of zeros, the rest of the bullpen, right? Kept you in some games and let this offense catch up. So definitely feel a lot better about those guys. Schreiber is Schreiber. Martin's really good. Jansen's really good. But man, the starters just need to be better. Because remember, this group last year, it was just, they were really bad and they were hurt all the time. Last year, they were just 21st in innings from starters, which is obviously an issue. The ERA was bad as well, 22nd at 449. They got crushed. So you look at what you got from your starters in the first series of the year. And good for them that they took two of three, considering this. The offense deserves a ton of credit. 11 and a third from your starters, right? So (laughs) what'd you get? They got like less than 42% of the outs in these games. It's just not sustainable. And then you give up 15 runs. So your starters were not keeping you in games. I give Tanner Houck like credit. Like I told you, you fell apart in that fifth inning, but at least Tanner Houck kept you in the game. Now you had the three nothing lead and you let them come back. But at least Tanner Houck gave you five innings and three earned runs. Sales giving you three, Kluber's giving you three and a third. So they got to find a way. And hopefully like we said with Kluber, he had a really bad first start last year. Hopefully he bounces back and same thing about sale. But I mean, obviously right now it goes without saying that that is not a sustainable thing. Okay. The other thing I wanted to mention is the guys that basically your three best position players from last season, like returning guys, Rafi Verdugo and Kike all look good. And you think about it now, I saw the note that Nesson had, and this is the third time that a team has scored at least nine runs in each of their first three games, which is crazy to think about. The other teams are the big red machine, the 76 Reds and the 78 Brewers. So that's the history that this lineup is living in right now, right? Like I thought the lineup was going to be good, but man, this was an explosion this weekend. I get it. It's the Orioles, blah, blah, blah. But If you start to think about these guys that are coming back to the team or came back to the team from last year that you were depending on, Kike's coming off hip surgery and he's playing short. You were kind of worried about that. How's he going to hold up there? And look, we're three games in. Verdugo's trying to prove that he deserves a contract. Kike has the two home runs. Verdugo homered on Saturday, fastball middle-middle, made Kramer pay for that mistake. Big hit in the eighth on Sunday, too, to bring in an insurance run. That was just really a nice piece of hitting. He just went down, got that change up, lifted it into right field. Didn't try to do too much. Love that approach from Verdugo there. The Kike home run, 2-1 fastball up. Kike murders fastballs going back to 2021. He slugged over 500. Then he hit the home run on Saturday, of course, as well. That was a four-seamer down, and it was only at 92. So Kike, like Duvall, he's a launch angle guy. So if you get a fastball down in the zone like that, that's like the perfect place for Kike to get the ball because he's just going to elevate it over the monster. But then Rafi, two hits on Thursday, three hits on Saturday, and two more hits on the finale, or in the finale, I should say, on Sunday. Already has three hits this year against lefties, which is massive. He just looks locked in. Remember, we were telling you, if Rafi's going to be in the MVP conversation, one of the big things is he's got to be able to hit lefties. 272 career against lefties, which is fine. It's not bad, but can he get that to 285-ish? And then you look at the slugging percentage. Can he get that to around 480? If he gets to 500, forget about it. He's going to have a ridiculous season. But he's at 415 in terms of his slugging career against lefties, 556 against righties, right? So it's a massive gap. And look, if he does this, I don't know how you pitch the guy, right? Like we saw it with David Ortiz. If you go back to 2004, Ortiz hit just 250 against lefties, 469 slugging percentage. 07, that went up to 308 in a 462 slug. And then his final season, he went to 313 in a 485 slugging percentage, right? So no reason to think Rafi can't get to 300 hitting against left-handed hitters. He certainly has the ability to do so. He's still young. And that's the crazy thing about Devers. Like, I know I know it's crazy to think about because he's been around forever. He's on the 18 World Series team and all that. But this is his 26-year-old season. Like, he's just coming into his prime right now. And he still has 
a lot of room to improve, which, I mean, if as a Red Sox fan, you love that. So I really do think those numbers are going to go up against lefties, and I think we're already seeing evidence in the first three games. You get three hits off lefties. Okay, I do want to get to a same-game parlay. Oh, I hit mine on Saturday. So I had, for a plus 528, Raffy hit, Raffy double, Verdugo hit, Red Sox money line. So they won on the last play of the game, right? The walk-off home run from Duvall. That was, I was so happy when that happened. I was going nuts. What a feeling. But... So I'm looking at this game for Tuesday. I'm looking at the same game parlay. Contreras is going for the Pirates, young kid. He actually, if you look at his numbers, he righties have actually had more success against him. He's a right-handed pitcher, so kind of a reverse splits guy. He has some nasty stuff. So I'm still going to keep Devers in there for the same game parlay. And I'm just going to keep doing it with Devers. Every game I'm going to do, Devers to get a hit, Devers to get a double, okay? And then I'm going to take Justin Turner to get a hit in this game as well. Turner doesn't miss, right? He's 18.8% whiff rate, doesn't really strike out. That was in the 77th percentile, year before 88th percentile. So if you look at Contreras, his four-seamers, he threw it 46.1% of the time to righties, and Turner handles velocity really well, hit 337 against fastballs last year, and he doesn't miss. So I think Turner's going to cash in, get a hit off Contreras with the high velocity. So the same game parlay for Tuesday, Sox-Pirates. I'm going with Justin Turner to get a hit. Raffi to get a hit, Raffi to get a double, and the Red Sox on the money line. So those are my picks to click coming up on Tuesday, Sox and Pirates. I'm just pumped that the season is underway. Ton of fun at the game on Saturday. Ton of fun watching this team play this weekend. And the Red Sox have a legitimate offense again. Now, if we can just get Chris Sale back on track, everything will be good. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, the Bruins... More history for them was made on Sunday. I wanted to get to what that means and where would they rank against the other title teams here in Boston. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. So I'm looking at the Bruins and what they've been doing. Of course, we all know that they're chasing down history and all that. But another sort of achievement for them on Sunday, they win their 60th game of the season, of course, against the St. Louis Blues. And... (laughs) (laughs) They almost blew it at the end there. Cairo scored with 23 seconds left. And you could just tell, like, in that third period, the Bruins are kind of on fumes. They got outshot on five on five, 11 to eight. And before that, they had outshot the Blues in the first and the second period on five on five. And the Blues just took advantage of it. They had to kill off a five on three in that third period as well. And so you could tell they were just kind of tired. They had won, what, nine out of 10 entering this game. You play... In Pittsburgh on Saturday afternoon, then you get to come back and play in St. Louis on Sunday afternoon. And obviously the Bruins, all eyes are trying to get the Stanley Cup trophy, right? Like that's what you're playing for right now. So these, they're just trying to get to the finish line right now. So I give them credit for finishing this thing off in the shootout, of course. And Coyle's goal was nasty on Bennington, just goes five hole. Great patience. And then what a save Olmark had on Shen. But man, the goal that came off the board in overtime, what a feed from... Well, first of all, Pasta finds Orlov, but how about Zaka? He started that whole thing where he just went around Sammy Blay, just filthy. And how about the pass he had on Saturday, too? The one to McAvoy where he, like, jumped in the air and then passed it over to McAvoy? He's had some nice games here lately. And then I would just say, like, obviously, we know what Pasternak's been doing over the past couple of days as well. That goal comes back because he was offside. And you had plenty of opportunities there. Marshawn was stoned by Bennington on a breakaway. Kind of remind you of 2019 where Bennington was like unreal. Remember Bennington, 32 saves in that game seven. And then the game that Chara came back for, game five, when he came back from the broken jaw, that was a game where he had 38 saves and he stole that. But this really is historic. If you think about it, other four teams with 60 wins in NHL history, 95-96 Red Wings, 
1819 Lightning, 76-77 Canadians. And if you look at these teams, like obviously the Lightning didn't win the cup that year. They got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets, but they won the cup the next two years. It's kind of like, for example, like the Warriors where it's like, oh, they had the best record ever. And then they won two championships. Now, the Red Wings didn't win it that year. The 76-77 Canadians did. The Red Wings didn't. But that's when you basically had the Red Wings avalanche rivalry, which was great. They did win again after that. But you also had the Devils were a good team at that particular point in time in the Eastern Conference. And so they didn't win it, but that was like a really, really good team, right? Like, it's not like they didn't achieve their goals eventually. So I don't think there's anything to look into and say, oh, well, history is not on your side. I, I don't really buy into all that shit at this point. Like, what are, you, what are you supposed to try to lose? Don't make history. Don't win the President's Cup trophies. I, I just don't really understand, like, the whole thing about, like, oh, nobody wins when they win the President's Cup trophy. Like, I, I don't buy into any of that stuff. But anyway, now they're going to get a little time here. They won't play again until next Thursday, which is good. Get them a little rest here. So... I did want to get to this. So as I was sort of saying off the top, I didn't get to see the 86 Celtics play live. So we've had a lot of champions here locally <laughs> since the year 2000, right? So I was looking at all the champions that we've had here in terms of where would this Bruins team rank compared to them? Like, would they be the best championship team ever for Boston? And like I said, I'm not going back to the 86 Celtics or anything along those lines. So I can't put the 07 Patriots in there, right? Because they didn't win. They ended up losing to the Giants. So the 03 Patriots were 14 and two. I believe the 04 Patriots are the best team now. The 14 Patriots are nasty too, but you can make an argument like that Seahawks team was more talented than the Patriots, the team they beat. But if you look at the 04 Patriots team, you had Rodney, <laughs> Ty Law, Mike Vrabel, Teddy Bruschi, Willie McGinnis, Richard Seymour. Okay, and then they added, remember, Corey Dillon that offseason. He ran for 1,635 yards. He had 12 touchdowns. He was third in total rushing yards. He was at 109 yards per game, which was second. They went 14-2, and two, and he just sort of brought that team to a different level, adding Corey Dillon, right? That was sort of a game changer for the Patriots. They were already really good, and then they got one of the best running backs in the NFL. So I would put, if I was going to put a Patriots team on here in terms of best Boston teams since the year 2000, that Patriots team would be in there. Okay, then there is not really a Celtics team that you could put on this list, right? Like, they've only won one, and I'm that sounds like greedy. Like, they only won one championship, right? I mean, the Orlando Magic are like, yeah, we've never won a championship, but you get my point, is the Celtics had the one team in 08 where that team was a regular season monster. They won 66 games, by far the best defense in the league. Like, if you go back and look, they had a 98.1 defensive rating. The Rockets were second in the NBA at 100.5. So they were significantly better than the team that was second. The net rating, so what they were doing in terms of outscoring teams per 100 possessions, that was at 10.8. That was obviously first in the NBA as well. Detroit was second at 8.3. KG won Defensive Player of the Year. He had an unbelievable season. Could have easily won MVP. 18-9, and nine, basically 1.4 blocks. Took way less shots than he did in previous spots. And if you look at like the Celtics with Garnett on the floor that year, 113.5 offensive rating, 97.6 defensive rating, 15.9 net rating. So they were outscoring teams by almost 16 points per 100 possessions. That is like stupid. Like right now, Jokic is the impact king, if you will. Denver outscores teams by 13.3 points per 100 when he's on the court. Garnett was basically at 16. That's how impactful Garnett was for the Celtics team. And then you just look at him and Pierce together. Pierce was number one in plus minus. He played seven more games than Garnett. Garnett was number two. So Pierce is at plus 784. Garnett was at plus 737. Third was Ray at 616. And in the entire NBA, 
<laughs> Those are the top three guys, and then Rondo was fourth at 6'11". But the reason I can't put that Celtics team over that 04 Patriots team in terms of the best champions here since 2000 is that playoff run, right? Like, Ray in that series against the Cavaliers averaged 9.3 points per game. He was 20 of 61, 32.8%. He was 4 of 24 from 3, 16.7%. This is Ray Allen, like one of the greatest shooters in the history of the game. But remember that? He just couldn't hit a shot. He had a zero-point game. He had a four-point game. We're thinking, like, what is wrong with Ray Allen? Is he ever going to hit a shot again? Now, he did completely go off in that Lakers series where he got going again. Maybe part of that is, like, remember him and Kobe had, like, a little bit of a rivalry going back to the Sonics days. But nonetheless, Ray just had, like, a really bad run there. In game six and seven, he didn't hit a single three. Ray Allen didn't hit a single three in game six and game seven. The Celtics still won. But remember, you needed seven to beat the Hawks in that first round series where that was actually Al Horford was on that team as a rookie. But it, it kind of makes you impressed with how long Al's been doing it now that I think about it. But anyway, I think the 9 Celtics would have been this team where it's like, OK, you put them up with the 4 Patriots before Garnett hurt his knee. The Celtics were 44 and 12. And that was the team that had figured out the postseason playing together the year before. And like even if you go back in 2010, they made the finals where Garnett wasn't the same guy anymore. So if that team made it to the finals, imagine what a healthy Garnett would have done the year after winning a championship. So I think it would have been the 9 team. Now, from a Red Sox perspective, the nominee for me is 2018. You could throw 07 in there, too, in terms of the most dominant. 07, it's a plus 210 run differential, 96 wins. He, they were the only team over 200 in terms of the run differential that year. But 18, they were plus 229 in terms of the run differential. And they had 108 wins, the most in the history of the franchise. So 12 more wins and a 19 run difference. 04 was great, but remember, 98 wins. Somehow they were plus 180 in terms of the run differential. And the Yankees won 101 games and they were at 91 runs, which is wild to think about. But anyway... They were down 3-0, though, against that Yankees team. And yes, that team was loaded. You had Schilling. You had Pedro. Ortiz was still sort of pre-prime, even though he had all those clutch hits in 2004. Like, 05, 06, 07, that's when Ortiz really started to explode. Manny was unreal at that point. But 18, they were just a wagon from start to finish. You look at it and you say, okay, the 2018 team, you had Mookie Betts was 10.5 Fangraphs war above replacement, or I should say wins above replacement. That was first in Major League Baseball. Like Mookie was legitimately the best player in the all of Major League Baseball that year. Like Trout, he took the crown from Trout for a year, but Mookie was the best player in baseball that year. You look at the numbers, 346. That was first. JD was second at 330. Mookie had a 438 on base percentage was second. JD was at 402, which was sixth. I mean, these guys were so good. Slugging percentage for Mookie that year, 640, which was first. JD was second at 629. JD had 43 bombs, which is second in Major League Baseball. Mookie, 129 runs, tied for first. 1078 OPS was second for Mookie. JD was third at 1031. And <laughs> the team was so good. They hit 268 as a team. As a team, their batting average was 268. Cleveland was second at 259. So nine percentage points in terms of the difference between the team that was first and second. That difference is the same from two to 14. So from Cleveland to the Dodgers. That's how wide the gap was in terms of the Red Sox offense compared to everybody else. Their OPS was 792, 11 percentage points in front of the Yankees who were second. They had 1,757 hard hit balls off the bat, 95 plus. That was first. The team that was second was the A's at 1,663. So 94 more than any other team, which is just crazy. Like going back and looking at the numbers from this Red Sox team, they were so good. And you look at Sale that year. He was great. 211 ERA, that was third. Strikeout rate was first at 38.4%. 
Kimbrell was sixth in saves, or I should say third in saves, sixth in strikeout percentage for relievers at 38.9%. And I know he scared us in the postseason, but he was great during the regular season. Mookie was at 17 defensive runs saved, too. Like, oh, my God, this season that Mookie had, <laughs> this is an all-time season. I know he won MVP, but just going back, this is like an all-time season. That was sixth in Major League Baseball and a second among outfielders that year. So the team was just unreal. So I would really go 2018 Sox and then the 2004 Patriots. If I was looking at the most dominant, the best championship teams since the year 2000, I would go with the 18 Red Sox over the Patriots. And if I think about it now, if the Bruins win this thing, the only thing they don't really have is like the best player in the world on their team, right? We're talking about historic, right? So Brady really wasn't that in 2004, like we mentioned the 04 Patriots. He was 15th in passing yards, 9th in rating. Obviously, it was Tom Brady, but... Tom Brady, like it becoming his team really happened in 06 and 07 where he just exploded, right? Like 06 to me is when it was just like, okay, this guy is beating that Chargers team like he was ridiculous that year. But anyway, or it, it ridiculous in that playoff run, I should say. And then they get Randy Moss in 07. We all know the history. But I would give that Red Sox team the edge because at the time, Mookie bets that season, that season was the best player in the world. He was better than Mike Trout. I mean, there's really all the evidence points to Mookie that year. And then JD was a top t- three slugger in the sport based on all his numbers and remember what they did in that playoff run like this is one of the separators like with that 18 Red Sox team they had one loss to the Yankees they had one loss to the Astros who had just won the World Series and they added Garrett Cole they had Verlander and Cole the Red Sox only lost one game to them in the postseason and then they only lost one game to the Dodgers and that was that crazy 18 inning game right so that 2018 team I think somehow still it's like underrated how good they were but anyway so if the Bruins win the cup They've been by far the best team of the NHL all season. They still have a chance at history, but entering the game Sunday, okay, because obviously the numbers aren't finalized from today. We're recording on Sunday. You look at it in terms of their points. The Bees entered Sunday with 123 points. That was, of course, first in the NHL. Carolina was second at 105. So an 18-point difference. It's just insane. The goal differential entering Sunday, plus 119. New Jersey was second entering Sunday, at 57. So a 62 goal difference, which is just insane. And that's actually a wider gap than the Devils to the Sabres, who are 19th in differential. So the gap between the Bruins and number two is wider than the gap between number two and number 19. Just ridiculous, right? And I do think, okay, yeah, you don't have the best player in the world like the Red Sox had Mookie that year. But, and Connor McDavid's obviously the best player in the world, but Pasternak's fourth in points. He's second in goals with 56. He's tied for seventh in plus minus with Bergeron. And man, he's just so dangerous. Like that pass he had on Sunday to Bertuzzi was ridiculous. And the hat trick on Saturday, I mean, that was that was vintage pasta, especially the last one where just the one time that's vintage pasta, but needed to get that power play going. And of course, got a goal on the power play on Sunday. But and then you also look at, okay, so you have one of the best players in the world. You're chasing down history and then you factor in, okay, well, Olmark doesn't have the resume of Andre Vasilevsky or anything along those lines, right? Like if you were going into a playoff series, most people would say I take Vasilevsky over Olmark, but the reality is he is going to win the Vesna. Like he's having an all-time great season for a goaltender. He's first in goals against, he's first in save percentage, and Swayman is fourth in both those categories. So you have a really good backup as well. So you have an elite goaltender, you have one of the best players in the NHL right now, you're chasing down history, and you have a lot more depth than you've had in the past, right? Like If you're thinking about a potential playoff series, now if the other team, when they're at home, they put their shutdown line, right, because they have last change. If they put their shutdown line on the Bergeron line, okay, well, you can try to take that line out, but now you've got to deal with the second line where it's 
Pasternak on that line with Krejci and Zaka, right? And so when you look at it from that perspective, that's the difference to me with this team. It's just the fact that you can't just take the one line away anymore because this team has so much more depth than it's had in previous seasons. Like if those guys weren't going, the perfection line wasn't going, you were fucked. And that's clearly not the case anymore. But anyway, and then you factor in Bergeron, like the history of Bergeron, the most Selkies of all time. And he's having another ridiculous uh, season. If you look at with Bergeron on the ice this year, okay, the... Bruins on five on five, 18 goals against with Bergeron on the ice. That's tied for the best among forwards minimum of 800 minutes of ice time. So teams are not scoring when Bergeron's on the ice. If you look at the goals for percentage, 71.43% Bruins, that's first. High danger chances for percentage, 63.6%, which is second. So all these like impact numbers we talk about a lot in the NBA, they all favor Bergeron. So fourth team to ever get to 60 wins. You have an all-time great player in Bergeron. You have... A guy that is entering his prime, like we talk about with Devers, Pasternak's 26, he's entering his prime. You have the defenseman in Lindholm that's leading the NHL in plus minus. You have a goaltender having an outstanding season. You have all this history. So if this team wins it, the Bruins, because the NHL playoffs are a lot different than Major League Baseball. Like sometimes, like we all know, like a goalie can get hot, whatever. I just think if the Bruins win the cup, I would have to put them as the best team here locally since the year 2000 because of all the history. And then you look at it like two, like that Red Sox team, one of my favorite teams of all time. They were, we went through it, how, how much of a wagon that team was, right? But think about it. A bunch of teams have won 108 games. That's what the Red Sox won that year. The 98 Yankees won 114. And you've had, what, nine teams have won at least 109 games or more. So there's been a bunch of teams that have won over 109 games. The Bruins are in a much better place in terms of the history of where they're at in the NHL, only the fourth team to win 60 games. So if the Bruins do finish this and they end up winning the cup, I'm going to look at them and say, this is the best team that I've seen in the city. And maybe you could say, well, maybe they're not as talented as some of these other teams, but no, I mean, by what they would do, by what they would accomplish, I would have to put them number one on the list. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Tuesday.